We're going to study tonight a group of tshuvas, not really a group, I'm just grouping them in my head, by Ramosha Stern, better known as the Debertina Rav. Ramosha Stern was a legendary posik in, in New York, in Brooklyn, in the latter half of the, of the 20th century. He was a younger contemporary of Ramosha Feinstein. He was about 20 years younger. Rav Ramosha was born, Wikipedia says, in 1895 and died in 1986. The Debertziner was born in 1915, about 20 years later, and he died in 1997, about a decade later. Both posts came in New York. Ramosha Stern, the Debertziner, he's, he's almost universally known outside of formal context as the Debertziner rather than as Ramosha Stern, but he was, he didn't quite have the same stature as Ramosha. But he was a very distinguished posik. His chuvas were published in Be'er Moshe, eight volumes, and are still widely quoted today. The Debertziner was very much not an American. Ramosha also was not an American, but uh, Ramosha was an old world, you know, Lithuanian style uh, posik. But the but Ramosha has a number of famous leniencies for America, Chalav Israel, and so on. Ramosha was adopted by America as the posake of the generation of the United States, along with Rafankin, but the, the Debertziner was very much a European posake, very much a, a traditionalist and an arch-conservative. He was uh, very, very old world, and yet, and, and, and this has occurred to me before, and it occurred to me again recently, and yet, in a number of the Debertziner's chuvas, despite his reactionary, sometimes fire-breathing, fire-breathing attitude, he was a remarkably modern posik in some ways as well. In particular, in a number of chuvas, he has a number of rulings in which he is emphatically, almost vehemently even, very pro-science and insistent that we take science seriously. Ramosha Stern sometimes, is, one puts him in the same category as Rav Menashe Klein, another, another uh, old-world European, very right-wing posik, but Rav Menashe Klein was kind of completely extreme on almost everything. Rav Menashe Klein takes the, almost sometimes the most extreme, usually the most extreme position possible, while the, while the Debertziner, who corresponded with him, in a number of chuvas, takes a remarkably modern and pro-scientific stance. And, 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 and this is the theme in a number of chuvas that we're going to study tonight. Now, he also can be very conservative sometimes. Some of his statements about, I think he has rulings that you can't learn the foreign published by organizations like Moses Rav Cook because they're Zionists and so on. He could be uh, a fire breather too. But in particular, when it comes to questions of science, he has a number of chuvas in which he, using again, using traditional language, he's very much not a modern Orthodox posik, but using traditional language and traditional argumentation, he takes a remarkably you know, pro-modernity and pro-science position, and that's the, that's the theme of several chuvas of his that we are going to look at tonight. So the first one I want to discuss is a tshuva. My chavrusa, Rabbi Yitzhak Mandel, brought this to my attention. We were studying the laws of telephones and microphones in halacha. Debertiner has a curious tshuva about someone made a neder. We don't really make nedarim today. I'm not sure what this was all about, but someone made a neder, a formal vow, that he would not, t- that he would not talk to his friend, to a certain, I don't know if it was his friend or not, but he would not talk to a certain person, for various reasons, which we'll discuss later in the tshuva. This was a formal binding neder. He would not hold conversation with this person. Now he has a, uh, a crucial matter he needs to talk to him about. It's, it's something very important. He doesn't say what it is, but it's very important that he speak to him. 
He could be Matar Nadr. Normally what we do in such cases is we do Ataras Nadar. But he doesn't want to be Matar Nadr. He likes the Nadr. He likes, in general, being forbidden to talk to this person. He wants a one-time dispensation to talk to him. And the person had an idea. Maybe I can talk to him on the phone. Maybe, maybe talking on the telephone will not violate my nether. That was a suggestion that, that, the, the, that was posed to the Debertina. Debertina rules that that, is, that does not work. Usser le daber email day telephone. Usser, no, no dispensation, telephone is usser. Now, in the bulk of the tshuva, the Debertina analyzes this from the perspective of Nadarim, and he says that the, the crucial principle that he says is that there's a rule that when it comes to Nadarim, we follow Lashon B'nai Adam. When it comes to Nadarim, we follow, when we want to know what words mean, we don't necessarily open a dictionary, we don't consult uh, lexicographers and linguists and academics. When it comes to a word, we don't look at the Gemara even necessarily. When it comes to what words mean, we look at, Humpty Dumpty famously said this in Alice in Wonderland, words mean what I want them to mean. Humpty Dumpty's point is that he can make up what words mean, but in general, the, the halacha is we take what the, what the linguists call a descriptivist rather than a prescriptivist approach. We look at what people actually mean when they use words rather than what the word should mean or ought to mean or mean in ancient texts. We have to know what people actually mean. That's what counts when it comes to Nadarm, because after all, a neder is a personal commitment. The commitment is whatever you meant. If, if that's what you meant, that's what you meant. If it's not what you meant, it's not what you meant. So the, the key question is, whenever we, have, we discuss a nether, we have, we have to figure out what, di, what do people mean when they say words like that. So the Debertiner's position is that when people say, speak to someone, that includes telephone. Speak to someone doesn't just mean speak in person, face-to-face. Speak includes, speak on the telephone. That's what people mean, at least in the 20th century. He, he goes back and forth on this point, but, but that's his basic, that, that's his alpha and omega, that's where he begins, that's where he ends. Now, that, that Lashem B'nai Adam, in the vernacular, when people say speak, that includes speak on the phone. He begins by citing a ruling in the Shulchan Aruch that, if you say, that you're allowed to write to someone. If you say you're not going to speak to me, you can write. But uh, you, you can write, and you can even... Uh, and, and, and you can speak to someone else, and he can overhear if you're not speaking directly to him. He says, but the bottom line is, we, 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 have, we have to ask ourselves what people mean. And he says it's clear to him that speaking on the telephone is included in speaking in the vernacular, and therefore it is usher. Then he says maybe not. Maybe you can argue that there are two possible reasons he might have made this nadir. One reason is, he says the general rule is we have to look into his intent. We have to figure out what he meant. That's the halach and the shulchan aruch. Anyone who makes a nadir or a shvua, we have to look at the, the context and the, the situation. Why did he make the nadir? And that, that, that sheds light on how we interpret the nadir. And we don't just follow slavishly the words, we follow the overall context. The, 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 we, we try to understand what he meant based on the context. So here he says there are, there are two ways to understand why he would make such a nether not to talk to somebody. One reason is because he's just so angry at the guy, he doesn't want anything to do with him. And that, he says, would certainly include the telephone as well. That if you're angry, you don't want to talk to him, you don't want to just cut him off and not have anything to do with him, speaking to him on the telephone is just as bad, he says. Or he says, maybe, the, maybe, maybe what you mean is, you, you don't want to associate with him, you don't want to meet him, you can, he has bad midos, you can learn from his bad character traits, and if you meet him and speak to him, you'll be influenced by him, that he assumes would not be, as, would, would not be a problem on the telephone. You can debate that, you can say that you can learn bad midos from listening to him talk as well. Okay, but he assumes that if that's the shot, that, that, that maybe, may and if it's not in person, it wouldn't be a problem, he says. 
He says, Ain't shumcha shasha ba'olam. There's no concern of it. He, he thinks it's obvious, it's clear. There's no concern about learning his bad midos if, if, it's, if you converse with him on the phone. But he says that the... But, but he says, he, comes, he concludes that the, that the Iker is, he says, that the, certainly in the, in the first case where he made the nedr because he, he's angry at the person, he, he, he has a strong antipathy to the person, it would be us or even on the phone. And then he comes to perhaps the most interesting part of the tshuva. He says that, well, the halacha is that, that you were allowed, that, that you, that, that you were allowed to, that you were allowed to speak to somebody else, and the person can overhear, he says, so I'm speaking to the telephone, and he's hearing through the telephone. Maybe that's like speaking to him via a third party. He says, that's a toes godel. That's absolutely wrong. First of all, he says, because, again, we have to follow Lashem Re'adam. Lashem Re'adam, this might be a legalistic way of looking at it. In Lashem Re'adam, speaking on the telephone is called speaking. Second, he says, the whole hetzer to speak to someone else, and he overhears is only if you're not intending to relay the message to him that he should hear it. If you're speaking for his benefit, that's us, sir. And then he gets to what I think is the most interesting part of the tshuva. This is the part that we were studying, the part about the microphone. He says that microphone and telephone and halacha, he says, certainly on the telephone is zaser, even though he says, and this is the theme that, this, this is the part that's relevant to our theme tonight, even though he says, chachmea technik, that we know from chachmea technik, we know from men of science, engineering men, technical men, he says, we know from, we know from, the, we know from scientists and scholars. How does the telephone work? Is it like an old ear trumpet, like the old tin can telephone, that it actually relays the sound through a mechanical means, through the medium of the phone and the wires? No, that's not how it works, he says. We know from the scientists, The sound that emerges from the telephone, from the telephone uh, handset, he says, that is not the original sound at all. W- rather, what happens is, El Nirsham your sound is uh, your your sound is received by the by by the receiver. He says, and by 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 the by by, by the sound receiver that you, that you that you originally speak into. He says, and there via gale electricia, by electrical waves, electrical currents, electrical signaling, the sound is heard from the other side. Besadasheni, It's not your voice. It's a, this is the key argument. He's going to discuss this at length soon. And in, in more detail. So this is the key argument made by all the postkim who said you cannot hear Megillah by a telephone or microphone or a hearing aid. You cannot hear Shofar by those means. You can't hear Avdallah by those means. You don't say Amen to Abracha on Zoom and so on. Well, this is all based on this basic understanding that Debert Siner has, which he says is, um, emerges from the scientists and the, the technicians. It is not the original sound. The, the sound has been transformed into electrical signals, the electrical signals travel through the wires, or today through the through the through the ether, through as radio waves, and then they are re-translated back into sound. The sound that emerges from the that emerges from the telephone is not the same sound that went in. It has been uh, communicated via electrical signaling, but it's not the same sound at all. Velochein, he says, and therefore kasafti makamacher. I've written elsewhere. Shigidole olam. There were great there were great chachamim. There were great poskim. A person can be yotze the mitzvah of Megillah. Can be yotze the bracha of Havdalah. Telephone, and he can therefore he can answer amen as well when you hear a bracha on the telephone. Ze'eno. What the Gedolei Olam said is wrong. I have great respect, he said, with, with, with all due respect to their great uh, Torah scholarship. I freely concede that these are 
Superlative Chachamim, he says, Ucha'afrani, takas kapas raglam, I, self-abnegating language, I'm like dirt under their, under their feet. But they're wrong, he says. What can I do? They're wrong, he says. It's not their fault. They're not guilty of, uh, of halachic malpractice, he says. They're not at fault here. Because they misunderstood how, how, how these devices work. That, that they thought that, the, that it's really the same sound that somehow is transmitted like the tin can telephone that's transmitted through the apparatus to the other person, to the other party to the conversation. This is absolutely wrong. It's just not the way telephones work. Telephone. Chas v'shalom, he says, therefore, to be yotzei mitzvahs by the telephone. V'gam ein lanos amen kishamea bracha idea telephone. You also can't answer amen when you hear brachas on the telephone. And he doesn't say who these gedolei olam are, but in all likelihood, he, ha- he's, he has in mind Ramosha Feinstein. Ramosha Feinstein has several tshuvas on the topic of Havdalah and Megillah and answering amen on a telephone, on a microphone. And Ramosha Feinstein was actually inclined to the view that you can be Yotzi the Megillah and you can be Yotzi Abdullah. He does not recommend doing this. He admits that it's a great novelty and it's not entirely clear. You certainly, he says, you should object to people who want to do this. People shouldn't be pursuing newfangled things. People should go with the old-time religion. People should do things the way we traditionally did them. Ramosha very much does not recommend doing this. However, in one of his truths, he says, if someone who has no choice, a patient in a hospital, for example, she, she can't get out. She, she can't get out to hear the Havdalah properly, he says. Of course you should hear it by the telephone, because it's more likely than not that you're Yotze, he says. That you're Yotze by the telephone. Ramosha, when he explains why, why you're Yotze on the telephone and the microphone, so he says, he says that, he also acknowledges that the scientists don't seem to understand the telephone as the actual sound. He says, the, the mumchem, the mumchem say that it's not the, he says, the mumchem say that, that it's not the actual sound. But Ramosha writes, he's, Ramosha writes that it's kosher lomer baze alacha brura. He says, lonis baraka right. It has not been, it has not been uh, sufficiently well established that that's how the telephone works. He says, uh, we don't have a reliable understanding of the telephone. In the middle of the tshuva, he elaborates in more detail. He says, even if we say, sha'emes kamira samumchem, even if the experts are right, that it's not the same sound, it's a new sound that was created from the sound by the electrical signaling, Nevertheless, it could be a Yotze, he says, because it, in, in, in terms of the superficial appearance, it looks like you're talking, even though it's technically not the way it works. But furthermore, he writes that the... Furthermore, he writes um, that, 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 that he says that the... That, that he says, Lo bara darmashu kol acher. He's not convinced that, that the experts are right, that it's a new sound. It's a baffling tshuva. It, it's difficult to understand for other reasons as well, but it's a baffling tshuva why Ramosha cast, was, was unwilling to accept the scientific explanation of the telephone. What, what reason would the, all the scientists and engineers and, the, and you know, have to lie about it? I, I don't know why, why he wasn't sure they were right. His other argument that even if they're right, you can argue that halacha doesn't depend on engineering. Halacha depends on the way it looks to people. It looks to people like it's the same voice, maybe, but, but the, this argument that he, he doesn't trust the engineers... I don't know why he would say such a thing. But the bottom line is that Moshe Feinstein, in more than one tshuva, was inclined to the view, again, he doesn't recommend being samech on this, he very much he says you should object to people who do this, but in principle, in theory, he says, it is more likely than not 
that the you are yote mitzvahs and so on. Some mitzvahs, not all mitzvahs. He distinguishes between weekday mitzvahs and Shabbos mitzvahs. Shabbos mitzvahs, he says, you can't be yote on the telephone. Besides from the fact that you can't use the microphone on Shabbos, he says, it's you can't be yote anyway for some reason. He doesn't explain why. And and he says, Birch Samazon and Kriyashma, even during the week, you can't be yote. Maybe because they're Daraisa. He doesn't really explain why. But I'll call upon him, Ramosha was inclined to the view that at least in some contexts, at least for certain mitzvahs, including Megillah, Havdalah, and answering Amin to a bracha, Ramosha was inclined to the view that that is considered your voice, and therefore it's as though you heard it live. Ramosha says, you need to answer Amin on a bracha that you hear on a telephone or a microphone. Misafik, Misafik, you should answer Amin. In all likelihood, this is whom the, Dever- the Debertziner had in mind when he says that there are Gedole Olam. Again, Ramosha was a slightly older contemporary of his, who was you know, widely, very widely esteemed and venerated in the United States, the Debertziner says that, with all due respect, that's simply not how the telephone works. Or the Debertziner says, that's what the scientists tell us, the Chachmat Technik. Ask the engineers, ask the scientists how it works, they'll tell you, it's not the same voice. Chas v'shalom to be yotze in the mitzvahs, you cannot answer amen, he says. And then he proceeds with a general, a general broadside against uh, Ramosha's attitude here, he writes... And again, I don't know if it's directed directly against Ramosha, but he says, I have written many times. The Debertiner actually has in his Sefer is a whole bunch of sections of the Sefer called Kuntris Electric. He discusses at length many questions involving electricity and technology. Krakosafti, he says, I have written many times, he says, that when you answer a shayla, a shayla involving technology and science, he says, a someone who paskins a shayla, Anytime the Shaila involves something novel, a novel engineering question, a novel question of technology, what do you have to do? Your first duty is, The first thing you need to do is consult an expert in the problem domain, consult an expert in the relevant science and technology. He says, because if you don't do that, if you're, if you're not going to, uh, if you're not going to consult a subject matter expert, he says, he says, Many times you'll make a mistake. You'll, you'll think it works one way. Science is not always intuitive. The, 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 way thi- the, way they, the way things may seem to an untrained layman may not be the way they actually are. And you can, make a, you can easily make a mistake without consulting experts, he says. You can end up with uh, an incorrect halacha on an obvious matter, which something like the microphone case is the way, the way he looks at it. It's an elementary mistake, he says, to think that a microphone or a telephone would be considered your voice. And, and if you understand the science, you'll understand that. If you don't consult a scientist, you'll, uh, you may have a misconception in how, in how these, these technologies work. My mother always reminds me, when I, was, when I was young, when I was a little boy, we had cassette tape recorders back then, ancient, uh, you know, that, that's like a cave painting era technology. We had cassette recorders. So occasionally... My mother, she, I would, or my mother or myself, I would, would record me speaking into the tape recorder, and then my mother says I would squeak out to her. Now let's see if the little man inside heard me. So yeah, I, I, I had an incorrect understanding of how tape recorders work. I thought they worked because there was a little man inside to the man inside who heard, who heard me and would now uh, repeat it back to me. But uh, that, that's not how it works. And if and if you don't consult experts. Or if you're very young, you may not understand the correct way that these devices operate by, the principles under which they operate. Therefore, says the Debertziner, make sure you consult experts. In this particular question, it is, it is necessary to publicize this uh, common misconception, this general mistake. 
People should not try to be Yotzi mitzvahs on the telephone and the microphone. You cannot be Yotzi all these mitzvahs and answer Amen on, via the telephone. Presumably, microphone is it. Yes. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Is there a definition when they try and say what the voice is? Because all of these devices, whether they be digital or analog, they are limiting the bandwidth. So not all of your harmonics will come through compared to face to face. So they they can't totally replicate the face to face. There's always something changed or missing from the spectrum. Right. So, 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 so Jay is raising an interesting question, an engineering question, that putting aside the, the, these halachic legal questions of whether a, a, a voice that's been turned into digital signal, uh, electronic signaling and then back into audio, audio waves is, a, uh, is considered halakhically the same voice or not, and putting aside the question of Lusha B'nai Adam and putting aside the question of whether we trust the engineers, the recording is not 100, is not 100% fidelity. The recording gives up some frequencies, gives up some harmonics, Jay was saying. The, the, the recording is, is uh, typically compromises in one way or another on the, you know, we have better recording technology today than they had 50 years ago, than they had 100 years ago, but it's still not perfect, and you still, you still sacrifice. Uh, sometimes the differences, the differences are barely audible to the human ear if it's a really good recording. Sometimes they are. Sometimes people have more sensitive ears. There are audiophiles who claim that they have uh, golden ears and so on, but... The, the, the fact is the recordings uh, range from near-perfect to uh, very imperfect. Do the posts make any distinctions? Do they ever discuss whether there's some kind of threshold or cutoff that, uh, that above this is considered a good enough recording that it's your voice, and below this it's not? It's a good question. I don't know. I, I did not study in preparation for this year all the literature on this topic, but that is a good question. Obviously, that's something we'd have to keep in mind, whether there's some kind of uh, threshold where the recording is too noisy or too... Uh, or too uh, lo-fi to be considered the person speaking or not? Interesting question. The basic, the basic telephone system always limited the spectrum on the low end and the high end in order to, to pack in so many channels, you know, per right. wire or per cable, right. or, per so, cable or per satellite link. So they're automatically limiting the voice and... Sure, to, to average people it sounds okay, but it's not the same. Right, so, so Jay's point... You have to admit, Jay, that when you listen to somebody on the phone, you're close to 100% accurate to who it is. So it's even not... though you're losing a certain amount of harmonics, right. so, so I mean, the, the, the fidelity... The, of... the intelligibility that changes also. It's the, the fidelity results in intelligibility compromises. Right, but now you're getting something even more specific, and um, the notion is we don't hear with our ears, we hear with our brain, and so all of these are just techniques to amplify sound. Right, so th- th- these are all good questions. You know, Jay is pointing out that in addition to what I was saying before, that, that limitations of the technology sometimes result in uh, the loss of fidelity, there are also deliberate engineering decisions to compromise on fidelity in order to uh, maximize, maximize the available bandwidth, maximize the, util- the, the, the utilization of limited bandwidth, and so on, and uh, and and Doctor Doctor Schwartz is pointing out also that the that hearing is not just about the the mechanical organs of the of the air itself. Hearing is about the the neurological processing that that, that goes into tra- translating the sound into 
something that uh, that means something to us. So th- these are all important points. And yes, and and and, and intelligibility uh, intelligibility has to do with uh, you know can be sacrificed by the loss of fidelity. I've certainly been on phone calls where the person sounds, you know, muddy and indistinct. And uh, certainly by the time you go through the... I've been doing training all day on WebEx and it, it, people have been dropping calls, dropping sales. Right, but my wife, has put, my wife has been doing a lot of stuff on WebEx lately and she points out uh, the, 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 the imperfect network conditions or technological limitations cause a less than ideal, not quite the same as face-to-face. And yeah, certainly the... There are all kinds of limitations, and that affects intelligibility. And the question, of course, is going to be, does any of this affect the halacha? Do, 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 even if we were to assume, let's say, that a perfect recording you know, under ideal conditions or a near-perfect recording would be good, real-world recordings, which, are, which do not live up to that ideal, is there, a, is there an argument to, to be made that, uh, given that they, they affect intelligibility as well, that that would affect the halacha as well? A very interesting question. The, the retina does not get into that, and the sources that I saw... Do not get into that, but it's de- that would definitely be something worth keeping in mind. I, I, it's so funny that the last sentence is so decrescendo, since everything is all about what a taos it is to make the, and how you have to consult a bucky, and then he ends up with its. I mean, mamish kivu medaberimo yasher pet alpeva bossers. Right. He didn't use the word mamish. It's like mamish talking to him, and you know, it's so. It's so it swerves. Right. So 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 so, so the, the right. Jason is correct. But the very last line of the tshuva, which we didn't even quite get to, gives you a little bit of whiplash because after he goes on for the whole paragraph, the paragraph which begins v'hagam sheyadua, that whole paragraph is uh, is a broadside attack, a, a fierce attack on those who argue that it's actually the sound. And he argues for every other context in the Torah, mitzvahs and avdallah, none of it works. He says in the very last line, he says, "Yeah, but after all that, he says, but he's exactly, but it's like mamish talking again." And, this is all from the engineering and from the technical legal perspective. Uh, the technical and legal perspective is not the same voice. But for Nadarim, he says, that's Lashem Adam. He returns to his original. Yes, it, it is a kind of uh, jarring and kind of, you know, gives you a little bit of whiplash the way he kind of does a hairpin turn at the last line. But, but that, that's his position. His position is that it, it, it is, for, from, a, from a technical standpoint, it's not the same sound. Therefore, from a formal halachic standpoint, it's not the same sound. Therefore, mitzvahs and brachas, which depend on a formal, objective question of whether this is the sound of the person or not, doesn't work. But Nadarim, he says, Nadarim is a whole different thing. Nadarim is, is, a, pure, is a question of Lashem B'nai Adam. It's a question of what people mean. People, you know, this is like, well, there are those stories about you know, fruits that are uh, uh, considered fruits in botany and vegetables in, in, in Lashem B'nai Adam. There, there was some, some case they taught us in school where... Uh, Someone argued before a judge that a tomato shouldn't be qualified as a fr- as a vegetable because it was a fruit according to the botanical definitions, and you know, basically the law says it's it's lashem bnei adam. It's the, it doesn't matter what uh, what botany says. It matters what the lashem bnei adam in most contexts. This is the if you look at Wikipedia these days, you look at various types of fruits and things. You'll see things like you know this is a botanical fruit, but a culinary vegetable, or a uh, scientific this, but a, a vernacular that. Yeah, so the, 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 that's his position, that Nadarim is a unique case. Or, well, not unique, it, it, the same thing is true for things like contract law, also tends to follow Lashem B'nai Adam. So things which involve human expression, a human says something, and we want to know what the human means, we're not, we're not so interested in the technical, objective, uh, absolutely correct reality. We're interested more in the, what words mean, what people use words, what the words mean. But when it comes to halacha, halacha is based more on the objective reality, the halakha is based more on the objective reality and not on the 
not on the not on the what not on what people mean. There, 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 there's an old line I occasionally used to see in uh, in some tech circles online. You know, somebody will say something like, "Well, maybe that's technically correct, but not really." Someone else will pop up and say, "Ah, technically correct. That's the best kind of correct." So yeah, so for engineers, you know, technically correct is the best kind of correct. But in other contexts, we care more about uh, we care more about. Uh, what people mean. If you want to know what, when a person makes an editor, we want to know what he means. So we have to. Add, so we're not interested in what the the, the 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 correct scientific understanding is. We want to know what he means. But according to the Debrettiner, halacha, halacha like Megillah, like mitzvahs, like brachas, that depends on the objective reality. And therefore, Ramosha he says Ramosha's position is is completely wrong, and we have to follow the science. Incidentally, Rav Shlomo Zalman Orbach was probably the most famous exponent to this view. Rav Shlomo Zalman Orbach, and lately Rav Asher Weiss, I think similarly, they also take this view that the bottom line is, if you understand the technologies correctly, Rav Asher Weiss also, I think, acknowledges that there were some who misunderstood the technology. He says, if you understand the technology correctly, it is clear that this is not the person's voice. Like the Debertiner says, this, what the scientists tell us is clear, and that's what determines the halacha. So in most contexts, the, the many, these many posts can say, you cannot be Yotze mitzvahs. Now again, Ramosha held that, in principle, you, you likely can, there were other posts who held that way as well, and therefore some posts like the Tisli Ezer, I think we discussed this once in an earlier share, say that again, like Ramosha, if there's no choice, it's better than nothing. If there's no choice, you're stuck in a hospital, you might as well do it. It's, uh, it, it, it there's not much downside, and it's uh, you, you, you might be Yotze, according to some opinions. But uh, the Debertiner's position, which is our focus tonight, is that we are absolutely committed to the science. The science says it is not your voice, therefore in Halacha it's not your voice. And therefore, you can't be Yotzi a mitzvah, and you can't say amen to a bracha. The Dharam, a different Nidharam follows Lashem Bre'ad. Next shuv I want to take a look at... Oh, Rabbi Grossman? Yes. So, this is Aaron. Just, just a quick question. What, what is the, the source for saying that it has to be the unadulterated original sound that is required to be able to achieve either saying the bracha or fulfilling the mitzvah? So, uh, so Dr. Sapis wants to know what is the, the, the what is the source for the for the assumption that you need the original sound and not a reproduction of the sound. So there is no there is no one hundred percent explicit source, and there's not going to be because they didn't have uh, these technologies in the time of the, in the time of Chazal. So, so we don't have an exact source. Some posts could play around with uh, the Mishnah in, Adar, in in Rosh Hashanah about blowing a shofar into a bar, hearing an echo. Echo, obviously, Ramosha talks about that. Echo is not exactly the same thing as hearing a reproduction, reproduction of a sound by electromechanical means. So, yeah, so it, it, it isn't an entirely obvious assumption. As I mentioned briefly earlier, one of Ramosha's arguments, in addition to the fact that he doesn't trust the science, one of Ramosha's arguments is that it may not matter. That, uh, that, 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 how do you define the sound of the chauffeur? If it looks to people, if it, if, it, if, if it comes at the same time as the chauffeur, it's more or less instantaneously, not quite. It tastes, sound, has a, uh, sound has a finite speed through a, you know, through, through a medium, but it's, uh, it, it's near instantaneous. It's perceived as being almost instantaneous. So Ramosha actually makes that argument as well, that uh, exactly this point. He says, what is the definition of original sound? He says sound itself is, uh, is, is, is a wave through the air. It, 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 what does that mean? It's the original sound. It's not the same air that came out of your mouth. It's, the, it's a transmission of a signal. So he says, so who said that the fact that the, fact that the signal was, uh, went through an extra translation layer to electricity and then back, into, uh, back into, into, into sound waves, he says, who said that's worse? You're right. That is, that is a totally tenable position. Even if we fully accept all the science, at the end of the day, 
we're dealing with a definitional question, what is considered original sound for halachic purpose and what is not considered original sound. So yes, that, 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 that is a valid question, and it's not, I don't think it's quite as obvious as the Debertiner makes it that the, the sound of the Megillah must be not having been translated into any other form of signaling along the way. But yeah, but the, the Debertiner kind of, kind of you know, goes right by the subtlety he seems to think that the only reason the people who disagreed with him is because they actually thought that the sound came uh, straight, you know, without it being trans- without being translated at all into electricity. That he says is just wrong, right? He, he never addresses this point. Well, maybe even if we say it was translated into electricity and back again, maybe that's still good enough. Which again, Ramosha does mention that. That's why I wasn't actually 100% sure if he meant Ramosha when he says Gidole Olam because he, he he completely doesn't acknowledge this argument which Ramosha seems to make. Yeah, but you're right; it, it, it's not totally obvious. Rosh Hashanah touches on this argument as well. Rosh Hashanah Zalman... Hold on just one second, please. Uh, let me just finish this thought. So Rosh Hashanah in, in his tshuva also touches on the... touches on this general idea that... It, uh, touches on this, on this possibility as well that maybe... maybe even if, even if we understand the microphone correctly, the telephone correctly, and we understand that it's not the same sound that, that comes out that went in... Maybe that's good enough. And he, he says he spoke to the Chazanish about this. Now, this is a very early Jew. He, he spoke to the Chazanish about this. And the Chazanish said, since it was, uh, since, since the, the call ultimately is, uh, is, is, is generated by the speaker, and like Ramosha says, and you hear it right away, and it, it, it comes out as the way people sound in the normal conversation as well. So again, from the human perception, it very much seems to be the equivalent of the actual sound, even though it's going through the telephone wires as electricity. Maybe that's good enough. Rav Shlomo Zalman says he doesn't understand this. It's a chiddush gadol ma'od, but any maven knows so. And I agree. I, I agree with Dr. Seipis. I don't think it's as obvious as uh, the Debertiner and, and Rav Shlomo Zalman think that halacha can't consider that a sound. Again, we, 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 at this point, we're, we're past the question of engineering. We're on the question now of, uh, of definitions, uh, what's considered original sound or not. But, but they feel that they're, they're so committed to the scientific understanding, to them it was obvious that that should establish the definition of the halacha as well. And they take for granted that uh, with this understanding of the science involved, they, they think it's completely uh, unreasonable to say that's called original sound. Yes, uh, Jay. Uh, well, the, the thing is, you have to stop, because otherwise if you go deeper sound from one mouth is a pressure wave in the air and it's not a electrical if it's a, like a wire so the pressure wave that comes out of a sound is modified by the room environment by the hall for example if you're in a shul that has a you know some alcoves or whatever you hear it directly but you're hearing modified sound which is acceptable so my question is if they're accepting the acoustic variations that happen as being kosher let's say for everything as you mentioned why wouldn't they accept other dis- changes or distortions as being acceptable as right just the intelligibility is there right so so, so 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 jay is making another point along the same lines of what we've been discussing until now that Anyway, there's no such thing as an abstract, pure sound. Sound, anyway, is vibrations in the medium of the air, and those vibrations are modified by the contours of the room and the drapes and the furniture in the room and, and so on, and other sounds in the room. So anyway, the, the sound is a complex system involving all kinds of different entities. So to, anyway, it, it doesn't make so much sense, Jay is arguing, to speak of the, the pure, untouched, original sound. 
So maybe they'll be, maybe being transformed into an electrical signal is one more step in the same direction. Yeah, and then that's similar to what Dr. Sapis was saying also, that, that at the end of the day, the, at the end of the day, we're, we're going to be left ultimately with a definitional question, with a halachic question, not, not purely an engineering question. What do, where does halacha draw the line? What is considered the same sound and what's not? So it doesn't seem entirely out of the question to argue, as Ramosha and the Chazanish do, that, the, that since, since from the human perspective it, it looks very similar to the person speaking without technology, he opens his mouth, he talks, and we hear the sound, and it, we can match it up to his lips, and it's almost instantaneous, and even real sound is not instantaneous either. That's the argument, yeah, because of all these considerations, it, it, it's much more of a continuum between same sound and reproduction. It's not, there isn't a, a totally obvious bright line cutoff that we can say this is the same and this is a reconstruction. So you're right, and that's apparently, just, and more or less, that's as far of Ramosha and the Chazanish. But the Debertziner and Roshnola Zalman held no way, no how. It's, the, it's a question of science, they said. The science was just so blazingly clear to them that they felt that it was... It was just unreasonable to take any other position with respect to the halacha. So, moving to a, another tshuva now. Ramosh, the Debertiner has a pair of tshuvas on the question of cosanguinity, the question of marrying relatives who are too close to each other. We discussed this a while back. We discussed in another, in earlier, a couple of years ago, I think, another installment of this year, we discussed the Sicily Ezra's tshuva and some other tshuvas on this topic. On the question of whether, uh, on the question of whether halacha allows the, uh, the question of whether halacha allows marriage between close relatives, and the fundamental problem, which the poskim grapple with, is the Gemara, and the early poskim indicate that marrying re- close relatives is a very good idea. Marrying your, obviously certain close relatives is incest, but other types of close relatives, like a first cousin or a niece, is perfectly mutter according to halacha. Halacha seems to recommend that, as a, doing a mitzvah if you do that. It's, 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 a, it's not clear exactly why. I think that the simple shot is because since they're going to get along, because they're related, they, they share a family background, and the marriage will be, will be good, and that, and that itself is a mitzvah to have a good marriage. But whatever it is, the Gemara thinks it not only isn't mutter, the Gemara recommends it. However, over the last century or so, science has realized that it is not a good idea. The risk is relatively low, unless you do it repeatedly over, over generations, like some of the royal families in Europe or some other very uh, insular cultures. And if you, if you do it enough, that it, it damages the genetic diversity and causes problems. Doing it once or twice, is, you know, the risk is, is quite low. But, but in general, the, the scientists have been recommending against uh, marriage with, with, to close relatives for a long time, for the last century or so. And, and Postkim, for the last century, have been grappling with this question, what do we do when science tells us one thing and the Gemara and early Postkim tell us something else? Now, in this case, the situation is complicated by the fact that in Rabbi Huda Chassid, Rabbi Huda Chassid was the great German Chacham from 800 years ago or so, he has the, his tzava, his ethical will, as well as the entire Sefer Chassidim, he has just hundreds and hundreds of these mysterious prescriptions, he has lots of prescriptions, some of them are very are perfectly logical, they're Musr and Halacha and, 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 and are perfectly understandable. Some of them, though, are deeply mysterious things, which have to be understood al Kabbalah or in some kind of other mystic, uh, in some mystic sense. He has all kinds of strange rules and guidance about what to do and what not to do. And in particular, some of his things flatly contradict Gemaris. This is not a new question. Gedol Akram have been grappling with this for centuries already. Various things he says flatly contradict Gemaris. And one of them is this issue. He says you should not marry a, uh, you should not marry a close relative. It's not a good idea. 
despite the fact that Mara says it is a good idea, he just ignores it and says it's not a good idea. So this is one of the many things where Rehuda Chassid contradicts the, contradicts the Gemara. But in this case, Rehuda Chassid is squarely on the side of modern science. Whether he understood genetics and genetic diversity and the issue it says we do or not, the bottom line is, in terms of the, the, in terms of the, the action item, in terms of the, the recommendation, what we have here is the Gemara and the early postgame against Rabbi Yudah Chassid and the modern scientists. So what do we do? So do we respect science against the Gemara? Do we, and scientists have support for Rabbi Yudah Chassid also, do we respect the Gemara? What should we do? So this question was asked to the Debertziner. They asked him, there was really an earlier discussion about this issue, which there was a whole, there was a whole discussion in the mid-20th century, all kinds of, the Gedolim wrote all kinds of articles, and someone asked the Debertziner for his opinion on the matter. He wrote a cup. He wrote a long pair of chuvas discussing discussing this question. What do we do when science tells us one thing, and the Gemara tells us something else? The Debertiner says, if the physicians say it is prohibited, you shouldn't do it. It is. He strongly recommends listening to them. Tov ma'od. You don't have to, he says, but he strongly recommends listening to them. And the reason is, ultimately, he says nishtanat teva. He gets into a long, detailed analysis of this, but ultimately, he says the reason is nishtanat teva. Nishtanat Teva is a famous doctrine that was advanced by the Balitosis in various places. Tosis, in their world, Tosis saw things that the Gemara said that they recognized as not being true in the world that they observed. So, you know, about 800 years after the, after the Gemara, they, they, they were seeing things that were not as the Gemara described them. So Tosis says about different things, Shema Nishtanat Teva. Things are different. The nature changes it can mean different things in different places. Sometimes it means something relatively, uh, relatively plausible, like the Gemara says, when you leave a liquid uncovered, snakes get into it and can put poison into it. The Rishonim said, we never saw a problem with drinks left uncovered. We, we don't have snakes, they said. There are no snakes that do this in our area. Fine. I mean, snakes, obviously, different countries have different snakes and different snake habits and so on. That's obviously a very reasonable thing to say. Other places, Tosis uh, introduces more, uh, more, more substantial uh, changes to nature, to the things that, are more, that would have been more universal in nature, he says they change. But, th- but this is, uh, th- there's a whole literature on this about Nishtana Teva, and how in various cases where, where, where various posts defended things the Gemara said that don't seem to be true, they said Nishtana Teva, one of the famous ones that's, that's very relevant to Lachal is that the, the Gemara says that a woman... A woman becomes a nida, and when a woman has vestas, a woman has certain days of the month where, based on her, it's a vastly complicated area of halacha, but based on certain of her past history, you know, past performance is no guarantee of uh, future outcomes, but the idea of vestas is that based on her, her record of her history of, uh, of getting her period, there are certain days of the, of, the, of the coming month where she has to worry, maybe she'll see dam on those days. Now, a woman who's pregnant doesn't have to practice Vestas because she's not going to get her period when she's pregnant because women, the, the, the period stops when, when she's pregnant. The whole point of the period is to get pregnant. Is to, that's how the reproductive system works. But the, when she's pregnant, she doesn't have her period. So a Vest, once a woman becomes pregnant, she doesn't have to observe Vestas. When does that begin? So based on the Gemara, m- many posts can say it's only three months into a pregnancy. The Gemara calls that hukar ubra, when the, when, the, when the pregnancy is visible and detectable. Only three months in. Before three months, even if she's pregnant, she can still get her period, and she still has to practice the laws of Vestas. Now, for several hundred years, the time of the Nod of Yehuda, for several hundred years, the Achronim have been saying, this is not true. A woman does not get her period anymore 
once she's once she once conception occurs, she doesn't get a period even well before three months. So Poskim for hundreds of years have been struggling with this, trying to decide what do we do. It's especially relevant today when we have accurate pregnancy tests much earlier than three months. If a woman takes a pregnancy test and knows that she's pregnant, does she have to observe the Vestos until from then on she can she can she can detect it a few weeks after the the actual conception? Does she have to observe Vestos for the next two months until the three month period? This is a major discussion in Poskim, and some argue Nishtan Ateva, that it used to be in the time of Chazal that they, that they didn't get periods, that they still got periods until three months. Today we don't. So some argue that. Some argue that the Lacha doesn't change. So Nishtan Ateva is, is, a, is, a, is an umbrella doctrine that, that, that in many cases we say that the laws of nature, that, uh, that the way the world works in various ways is different today than it was in the time of Chazal and earlier Poskim. So the Debrettiner ultimately... That's his basic point throughout the tshuva. He argues that if that if if it's clear from Chazal that in general it was acceptable to marry relatives, and today the scientists tell us that it's not, we definitely have to accept. We definitely should accept what the scientists say that it's tov ma'od lachish ledevreim, and we should accept. He said they're not just making things up. He says they're, they're basing it on empirical evidence. He says experiments. He says they're not just saying svarabalma. He, he reiterates throughout the tshuva. The scientists are not just speculating. They have experience. They have they have reason to say this. He says. Chazal said it was, it was okay. So, and he, he develops this point at length throughout the tshuva. He says that the, he says that the, that Nishtana Teva is a well, is a well-developed doctrine, he says. Bizman the physicians tell us, they say that Nesue Krovim, the marrying relatives like Basachoso and net nieces and cousins, he says, and so on. It damaging to the potentially damaging to the progeny, and he says, that, and they say that this is based on Chakira and Drisha. This is based on thorough investigation, thorough study. He has great faith in the scientific process. Many many experiments. He says, how can we allow such a thing? How can we allow someone who asks us and say it's okay? We have to we have to follow. He says, it is obligatory upon us to admonish the the questioner that he should marry someone else and not one of his relatives. It's clear the Nishtana Teva in this area, he says. And again, he reiterates that since the physicians tell us that, that we have Nisayan, we have experiments, Chakiros and Drishos, all kinds of studies and, and so on that they've done, it's absolutely incumbent upon us to tell people they should not do this and that, that they should not do this and so on. Now, there's actually more, more I want to cover on this topic, but we'll save it, uh, we'll save it, Blinader, for next week. It's, it's a little bit late. I, I do just want to want to close in mentioning one distinction he makes, a kind of a curious distinction. He says that anything Chazal said is an actual mitzvah. When Chazal, when Chazal didn't just say it's okay. When Chazal said it's an actual mitzvah, he says, then he absolutely does not want to say Nishtan Ateva. It can't be. I don't understand why he's so emphatic about this, but he says it can't be. If Chazal said something is a mitzvah, we, the doctors can tell us till they're blue in their face that, that things are different, that, 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 that it's not correct, he says. Doesn't matter, he says. He says, think something that's a mitzvah, it is Asr Arofim, even after many uh, experiments and, and uh, assurances of the physicians. If Chazal said it was a mitzvah, mitzvahs are eternal, it'll never change. What about marrying cousins? Chazal said it was a mitzvah. Oh, he says, that's fine. So he says a chiluk, which we discussed previously, he says, he, based on what other Akharim say this as well, he says, it's only a mitzvah if you do it L'Shem Shemayim. If you marry her purely L'Shem Shemayim, then it's a mitzvah. Then, then it's a mitzvah, and Shomer Mitzvah Le'edah Davarah, God protects you, mitzvahs are protective, then you don't have to worry about the danger of the cousins, he says. However, 
But Rabbi Yudah Hasid, and certainly in our time, they meant that today, it's, this I believe was Rabbi Kalaskin as well, he quotes this from Rabbi Kalaskin and Evan Harosha, one of the earlier postings to discuss this question as well. He says, today we don't do things L'Shem Mitzvah, that Yeridus Hadaros, we're not so high-minded and pure-minded as earlier generations, and therefore today we're not Mechavin L'Shem Shemayim, even Rabbi Yudah Hasid's time, and certainly today, Therefore, today, we have to listen to the physicians. In the time of Chazal, so Chazal were not wrong, and that, that never changes. In principle, if you do a L'shem mitzvah, then, in principle, if you do a L'shem mitzvah, then you, then you, uh, if you do a L'shem mitzvah, then you don't really have to worry. Shor mitzvah liyeda davara. But if it's not a mitzvah, then you should listen to the physicians. And, and even though Chazal seemed to tolerate it, he understands, even when it wasn't a mitzvah, even when they weren't doing L'shem Shemayim, that, that they simply tolerated. That can change. That, that we say Nishtan HaTeva. In Chazal's time, even without the mitzvah, it was okay, it wasn't so dangerous. Nishtan HaTeva, today, that changed. But when Chazal says something is a mitzvah, that can never change. However, that's limited to when you actually mechavin L'shem Mitzvah. One other example of this idea he brings, that when something is a mitzvah, it, we can never listen to the physicians otherwise, that is the famous controversial question of Metzitzah B'Peh. The, in the time of the Talmud, the Mohel, when he performed the bris, he performed oral suction on the wound, on the, the cut in the, in, the, in the male organ, to draw out blood. The Gemara says, if a Mohel does not do metzitza, hay umna dlomayitz, sakantahu, it's dangerous, umavrinale. You fire him from the job because he's, he's risking the lives of the infants. It was considered, A, crucial to do, it can, it can save the baby's life, and B, they, they obviously didn't think it was dangerous in terms of transmitting diseases. Or if it was, the, the benefit outweighed the danger. Today, of course, we think that it's dangerous, that you, that you can transmit uh, herpes, other d- various diseases from the mohel through the saliva to the open wound on the baby. Today, we, many, many scientists do not recommend doing this. We also don't know of any benefit. We also don't know of any real advantage to the mitzitza. So beginning almost 200 years ago, there was an epic battle between the modernizing and progressive Jewish thinkers, the early reformers, and moderates in general, against the traditionalists and the reactionaries about whether Mitzitzvah Pesh should be abolished. It became a major war, it became a major battleground in the, in the, in the battle between the reformers and the, and the traditionalists, where the traditionalists drew a line in the sand and says, we will not give up Mitzitzvah. Even in our generation, in recent decades, there have been some pitch battles about Mitzitzvah Pesh. Today, it, it, it's somewhat more common to do actual mitzvah peh among the Hasidim and the real traditionalists, among the more modern, among the more modern and moderates. They, they do various compromise things often. They do uh, mitzvah via tube, mitzvah via you know, cloths and other things, but they, they don't do actual direct uh, oral genital contact. So it's, it's a major machlokus, even, even till today, whether mitzvah peh should be done or not. So... The, the Debertiner here, as I mentioned, in some ways he was an arch-conservative. He very much agrees that Matitzvah Peh is crucial. And he says that, what happened to Nishtana Teva? Why can't we just say that things have changed and today it's different? We follow today's science, not the science of Chazal. He says, no, again, the rule is, he says, when Chazal declared something to be a mitzvah, he says, when Chazal integrated something in the performance of the mitzvah, he brings the Maram Sheikh, Chas Shalom, he says, that, that to, to abandon it, the, the doctors are saying sheker when they say, people who say nishtana teva are saying sheker, he says, that, uh, and that's not a theory, he says, because even though I'm very willing to say nishtana teva with regard to things like marrying cousins, he says, because mitzitzah, which is a mitzvah, it's a halacha in mila, some argue mitzitzah was never a halacha, it was just a, it was just a, it was just a medical precaution, Chazal said, and that can change, but 
Others say, no, it's a chalik of a mitzvah, he says. The Debertiner says, it's a, if, 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 if it's, it's a halacha brura, it's chalik of mitzvah's mila, it's a portion of the mitzvah of mila. That, bevadai lo yeshuna velo tishtana. Debertiner holds, it cannot change, it will not change. Behevel yifte pi the rofim are saying nonsense, he says. When they say that, when they say, hepach midvar Hashem elokim chayim, the rofim who are trying to contravene God's word, they must be making a mistake. Toem b'achlatasem, like we see that they make other mistakes, he says. However, when they don't contradict the Torah, he says, then we have absolutely, we, we, we are mandated to follow what it says, to follow, based on Shulchan Aruch, we're mandated to follow what they say. Certainly we could just marry somebody else, he says. And that is his position, he says, If the Shiloh comes to you and someone wants to marry a close relative, we have to tell him, no, you should not do that. The doctors say it's wrong, it's unhealthy. The Debertiner, again, despite the fact that when it comes to things which he considered religious uh, issues like Matitza Bepeh, he, he, drew, he was willing to say the doctors are sheker and heavily if it's a PM or are just wrong, he says. But in general, he had a tremendous respect for the physicians. He feels that they're not, they're not just saying as far as he says, it's the scientific method, they verified it by experiment, he says. So in general, we should discourage people, we should strongly discourage people from marrying relatives. Unless, he says, we know that a particular zivug is l'shem shemayim, then it's a mitzvah, he says, he can't find another appropriate zivug. Then he says, uh, we, we can tell him, go ahead, shar mitzvah liyeda davarah, it's okay, he says. But in general, he says, in general, we do follow the doctors, we do follow medical advice. The doctors are, uh, are wise, they, they, they've, they've, they've done, the, 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 it, it, their recommendations are based on extensive research, and not just, not just theory, it's based on empiricism and evidence, he says, and therefore we are obligated to follow the doctors, except when it contradicts the Torah. When, when there's a clear and irreconcilable, at least in his view, contradiction to the Torah, we say, Sheker and Hevel, we follow the Torah, but beyond that, he says, we absolutely follow the doctors. Why it's so obvious to him that just because something was a chalik of the mitzvah, it can't change, the science can't change, I don't know. Even if it was a mitzvah, if the science changes, then, if that, then I, I don't know. Chazal said it was a mitzvah because in those days it was healthy, so it's a mitzvah to do it. Today, marrying relatives is not healthy. I don't know why he's so convinced that anything that's a mitzvah could never change. I don't know why the mitzvah can itself hinge on whether it's dangerous or not dangerous. But that, for some reason, he has a conviction that anything the Chazal declared to be a mitzvah no matter what happens, we can't, uh, we, we can't overturn that. But, but in general, when the doctors say something which is not against Chazal, by all means, we have to follow their advice. This, of course, was the position that most of the mainstream posting took uh, on, uh, when COVID hit, that insofar as the doctors tell us something, we have to defer to them, when, certainly when it doesn't go against the Torah. That in general, this is what most posts can say, but the Debertiner, despite his being an arch-conservative in some ways, is also very willing to endorse this position that what the doctors say should be treated as wisdom, as truth in general, unless it contradicts the Torah. What the doctors say, certainly when it's based on experience and evidence and science and studies and not just theory, he says, we absolutely should listen to them and uh, we should do what they say. Certainly if it's a question of danger, we should avoid danger by following medical advice. But Rabbi, doesn't the Debertiner... I hate to sound disrespectful. It sounds like a, a bit of a naysayer. So the Echad Shenodar, he can't speak on the phone to break the, that he's not he's not allowed to do that. And you're not allowed to be Yotze with the mitzvahs of Havdalah and Megillah. And you're not allowed to marry someone 
who you love, who might be your cousin, but, and you can't protect the infant from infection. <laughs> it's like a little bit like a bit of a naysayer. So, so, so Jason is pointing out that one, one commonality between all the rulings we discussed tonight is that they are all uh, denying people the right to do what they might otherwise want to do. They're all, uh, they're all yeah, postgames sometimes are, are, the halacha sometimes says no. Is a Debertiner in general a big machmir? I don't know. I'm not sure that, that again, it's, it's, uh, we'd have to study more of his chuvas. It's a good point. And all the chuvas we had tonight, the, the chuvas are all, uh, are all uh, are negative. But yeah, but negative sometimes is right. You know, the, the, when Postkin told us in the time of COVID that we have to avoid, avoid uh, follow the doctors and not do certain things, I mean, that, that was, that was uh, the right thing to do at the time, most of us, I think, uh, understand. So yeah, you'd have to see, I guess, if the Debertiner was overall... Uh, a tremendous machmer or not. I'll, I'll mention briefly one other tshuva. Uh, we'll, we'll discuss more of the Debertiner's tshuvas next week, Blinader, but one other tshuva that uh, I, I, always, I always quote from the Debertiner is, they asked him, it was, it was very hot, one, I think, Shabbos afternoon, it was really hot, and the air conditioner was off, and he wanted to know if they could, they, the question arose, can they ask a non-Jew to turn it on? He says, and I, I saw this literally decades ago, so I can't swear I'm, I'm reporting this entirely correctly. He said, I answered, No. You cannot tell a non-Jew to do it. And then he explains, even though we know that uh, we sometimes are allowed to ask non-Jews, particularly if the, if the comfort and well-being of an entire tzibur is at stake, for an individual we're stricter, but certainly when the, when the, when the, when the substantial discomfort of an entire shul is at stake, that there is basis to allow asking a non-Jew to turn on the air conditioner, he says. So there certainly is makam to be lenient, he says. But I ruled it was usher anyway. And the reason is, he says, is because, unfortunately, he says, is a big problem People are far too lenient in asking non-Jews. Some people just think they can ask a non-Jew whenever they want. And it, it, this goes back to Europe. This is not just an American thing. Apparently in Europe, the whole concept of the Shabbos guy, people just thought that a Shabbos guy was like, uh, get out a Shabbos free card. You can just ask a Shabbos guy to do whatever you want. Anyone who has studied Hulcha Shabbos and Amir Laakum knows that's not the case. That Amir Laakum is mutter in many cases, but it's also usher in many cases. And it's not mutter whenever you want. So the Debertziner says, as a matter of public policy, I refuse to give a public hetter on Amir Laakum, despite the fact that it might have been warranted, because people have to learn a lesson, people have to understand that Amir Laakum is a serious thing, and it's not a joke, and therefore, as a matter of policy, he says, not halacha, I refuse to matter such a thing, and I told everyone that they have to sit there and swelter, even though uh, there was a halachic basis to allow it. So that, that, I guess, fits into the pattern Jason is mentioning, that the Dertiner was uh, not at all afraid to say no when he thought uh, no was called for, even beyond the letter of the law sometimes. Whether, if, if we consider all his work uh, together, whether he was, on the whole, very machmer or not, the Blinetters, some of the chuvas we'll discuss next week. Some of them will also be chumras, but also I think some of the chuvas we'll discuss next week were ac- are actually going to be leniencies. So, uh, so, uh, so, so, yes, yeah, so, so we'll return to this question next week, I hope.